Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have joining me John Henry Parker. And John, I have known for many, many years. And our paths crossed again because of his new book that he's got called Be the Dawn in the Darkness. Good day to you, John Henry. How are you doing? Good. Great. Great to see you, Greg. It's great to have you on the show. And as we were talking pre the show for all of my listeners, um, this book is a very raw, hero's journey, um, very, very open. And he's, he's, he's very, um, I don't want to say authentic um, during this. And the stories that are told are really captivating, extremely captivating. It's a very well-written book. So kudos to you for writing such a great book. Um, and it's a book that anybody can relate to. That's what I want people to know. Um, all of these difficulties and traumas that we go through during our life, um, a lot of times get put under the rug. And we don't address them. And John Henry is here to help you listen and be open to you addressing these. And I want to tell him a little bit about you. He's an American writer, narrator, team communication consultant. Uh, he says, my credential, my credentials are my life experiences. And when you start to hear what we're going to talk about here, you'll say, oh, my goodness, I realize now that your life experiences um, there's a thing called experiential intelligence. It's like spiritual intelligence. It's like EQ, but there's experiential intelligence. And if there's anyone that has it, it's John Hendry. Um, he considers himself a subject matter expert and researchers in the areas of trauma, depression, anxiety, and shame. Um, he speaks to humans. I believe humans race is running dangerously low on humanity. He says the qualities that make us human are what I'm referring to. Um, the ability to love, have compassion and empathy for one another, and then permission that we give ourselves to share and create genius pent up inside. Um, he really works a lot with veterans, transitioning veterans and their families. And in the memory of his son, Jan, uh, Danny Facto, uh, was killed in excessive speed-related motorcycle accident after completing his military service, uh, also received a Purple Heart. Um, for those of you who want to know more about John Henry, go to harvestingwisdom.com. That's harvestingwisdom.com. We'll actually put a link to that uh, in this um, blog entry of ours. So mm. just remember, you can learn more about the book, the audiobook. By the way, for all of our listeners, this a book a breaks on March 23rd. And John Henry, thanks for joining this morning. And, you know, like many families, some relationships are tumultuous, some are challenging, whether it's mom or it's dad or it's a sister or a brother or siblings. Uh, there are all kinds of challenges because one of the most challenging things we have to navigate during our life, most of us, are relationships. Um, you and your brother and sister had a very, what's called tumultuous and abusive relationship with an alcoholic father. Um, if you would help set the stage for the book by telling us a little about your dad, because uh, the way you talk about him in the book is just so descriptive. <laughs> That I can see a picture of him almost. It's like, man, I could actually see the man. Um, 
because, and I'll tell you why. Now, here's where my listeners can kind of relate. He was writing this about his dad, a big guy, lots of muscles. That was my dad. My dad was a lot like John Henry's dad, although he didn't use alcohol. He just was angry. He was angry a lot. Um, and you had to watch out when he pulled out his belt because he had a little whip belt that he would pull out. And we all at times maybe have had this or something similar. So why would you write the book? Why now at this stage in your life, later stage in your life, uh, explore all this? And what do you want people to know? Well, there's a lot in that question. I can tell you, I, I started writing the book as a therapeutic writing project because um, I just started writing about certain painful things in my life. And I thought if I just write about them and I can get them outside of myself, I can look at them, you know, that might help. And it did. And the more I wrote, the more I came up with all these pieces of work that I, I started noticing that there was patterns and there were times in my life where this was really present and real, but then I grew and evolved and something else would happen. So I start writing about that. So it really began as just a way to kind of deal with unresolved trauma, you know, unprocessed trauma. And the more I got this outside of myself, the more I realized how, how therapeutic it was. It, it, it came to me one day looking at, at my desk full of papers and my folders on my computer that there was something here. And um, I'm a big fan of jo Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero's Journey. And so I started looking at graphics that represent the arc of this hero's journey. And I pulled out a graphic and um, I put it in PowerPoint and I started creating little teeny text squares. And I started writing all these little experiences chronologically to follow the arc of the hero's journey. And then I combed through it more and more and more. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw my table of contents, you know, and, um, and so I created my table of contents and I took the chapters that I already written and I plugged them right in and it gave me just a, like a structure to think from. And then I started with all the easiest ones first and I saved the most painful to the very, very last. And I spent most of COVID writing this. It was my COVID project and it took me about full two to three years now looking full circle. And so um, I really, I really wanted to write it because I needed to get it out of me and I needed to look at it. Well, and you can tell that it was very cathartic for you. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. reality when you, when you look at how well you expressed yourself and you followed the hero's journey, it, it truly was. Um, and it is, I should say, um, a tremendous work of love. You know, you could see that self-compassion was a big deal for you. You know, this relationship with your dad didn't have a ton of compassion in it, right? Um, there was actually, as you mentioned in the book, a lot of hate. And there were things that he did, but it came full circle. You know, it went all the way around full circle. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge you for that because a lot of people never take it full circle. Um, they don't ever come back and I, and we use a term, you used a term in there and I have it in one of the questions that it was, was so appropriate that you were extremely tolerant 
uh, of this man at the end, right? I mean, where you could have just stayed angry the rest of your life. Right. Well, growing up, I mean, he was a violent Korean War, a Marine Corps combat veteran, and uh, it was terrible for him. And he would never talk about it. If there was ever anything, any kind of war movie on on TV, he would just immediately stand up and walk out of the room. Right. He was incredibly traumatized. And then he went to Vietnam um, and got uh, as a as a reconnaissance photographer. Uh, he joined the Air Force out of the, after the Marine Corps, became a reconnaissance photographer, and he got shot down with his pilot uh, over Vietnam. And and he had to evade capture and that live in the water in the swamps or whatever. So that was even more traumatizing. So that's about when I came along and my sisters and brother and my sister and brother and I came along and, and um, he was just he was really abused physically as a, as a child, you know, and so he he didn't really have the tools but I got to tell you, I'm not letting him off the hook because what he did was criminal and he should have gone to prison. There's so much worse, far beyond getting spanked and getting abused once in a while. It was just relentless. It was continuous. And, um, you know, I, I just, he had PTSD, you know that. And sure. uh, and, you know, when I when I saw your description of him, I could relate to my dad. My dad grew mm-hmm. up in an orphanage. He didn't have anything. Uh, he was in the Korean War as well. Um, and I remember him when he, you know, he would bring out these little artifacts from where he was, similar to your dad, right? And then, but he was very angry. And I asked him, I said, hey, dad, I remember once, did you ever kill anybody? He goes, yeah. And and that wasn't the end of it. It was like I did. And, and then I said, how? And he said, well, I was the mechanic for the Jeeps and all the half tracks and stuff that was over there. And I was working on that and a guy tried to steal one and I actually knifed him. I stuck my bayonet knife through him or his knife. And it's like, wow, you know, and I'm only saying, you know, this is just one little incident. You can imagine what these guys deal with that are on the front line. You know, I mean, my dad wasn't on the front line even, and he was dealing with the trauma of what he had done, right? And, you know, in this hero's journey, you right away go from that very descriptive chapter to this chapter where you talk about your great aunt Glad. Now, this woman really was uh, the pinnacle of giving you hope in your life. Um, and you referenced her and you always received three books from her at Christmas, you said. Um, and you speak about a special note that she tucked away in this book about Michelangelo that really had an impact on you. What I'd like you to do is tell the listeners the story and the important message your aunt was telling you as, as a young man about, uh, you know, Michelangelo, because you put a quote in the book, actually, that was there. And I, it was about chiseling away, right? right. Um, and, you know, this aunt was really very, very special. And I could relate because I had an aunt that was pretty much the same way. Right. Well, the book is about, for, for me, it's, it's, there's, there's, it's about a lot of things. But one of the main things that I love the most about it is really paying attention to the matriarchs and the patriarchs of families and healthy adults. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It just takes one healthy adult to care and to listen and to tell you you're going to do extraordinary things with your life as a young child. And my my whole thing is I believed her because she said it. She was that much of a, a wise matriarch of our family. Right. You know? And um, so every year she would send these books. And even uh, before I could read, I would just look at the pictures. And it was my way of escaping. My mom and I would escape through movies and books and you know, adventures and that sort of thing kind of time i could i could time travel in my mind because i was so stuck in my environment that I, I i had a vivid imagination so looking at the statue of david and talking to glad about it she's she's just really really clear you know that you know matter of fact i'll just read the quote that was in this little in yeah the, it'd be great remember the story of the sculpting of david through your most challenging experiences, you must chip away all that is not you to discover your true self and your life's purpose. You know, this is five years old. Yeah. And then I come across it again when I'm 12 and 13 and I call her, you know, and she's like, it's just so funny. This is how this whole thing works because she had a choice. She was, she lived up in Ottawa. She worked for the French embassy and she, after she retired, she would come live with us in Phoenix to get out of the winter cold for two months a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, she could have lived with my grandparents a few hours away uh, down in Nogales. But uh, she decided to come to Phoenix once a year and embed herself in our house. And I now know and I knew later on that she did that so she could give us some safety for a period of time away from my father because he would not dare like offend her in any way. He was just a consummate gentle gentleman. And, you know, but before she would arrive, he would put us against the wall in the hallway and poke us in the chest and tell us, we don't talk about what happens here in our home. If I hear anything from Glad, you will pay. And he's punctuating while he's thumping us in the chest. You know, that's the kind of scariness that we, we grew up with. And so, so Gladys is just an incredible person in our life. Uh, she was uh, awarded the, the the French Legion uh, Medal of Honor by the French government after the mm-hmm. war. After the war, and uh, she was the only Canadian journalist during the Nazi invasion of France and in Paris. And so, up to the up, building up to the war, she was there as a Canadian journalist, and she would go into Germany as a tourist and go to all the all the 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 big marches and meet with people and talk to people and bring those stories back in her head. So she was really a pretty heroic woman. And so um, she She was also kind of a savior. She was a savior for you, like your grandparents. Um, You know, you, you had this tumultuous relationship with your father, but your mother was very loving and kind and supportive, but you had this angry kind of beast of a father. Right. Um, and, but all around you, John Henry, you had a support structure like what the hero's journey is about, right? It's like, okay, good endeavor out on the journey. You know, I certainly wasn't having a great relationship with my dad, but I had a good relationship with my grandparents. I had a good relationship with my aunt. I had all these other people in my life that were supporting you along the way. And if you would, you tell a great story about the upbringing in the book and, and special relationship you had with your grandparents. Um, can you tell the listeners about the time you were staying with your grandparents? And I thought this story was particularly um, 
poignant. And you ran into the street, and I can't remember what age you were at that time. And you said, right out in the middle of the traffic, I'm all powerful. <laughs> That's what you said. I'm all powerful. Um, how did that make you feel? Now, the repercussions afterwards from your grandparents weren't like the best. Your grandmother was like, hey, what the hell are you doing, kid? Go away, run out in the street. Right. What do you believe you were uh, seeking by your actions? In other words, what was this? What were you trying to gain at that point in your life that you didn't have any of? Was it recognition? Was it the fact that you are all powerful? What, what was it that you needed a dose of? I needed to find some kind of power because at that time I was sitting at my grandparents' house and I was watching TV with my grandfather, like I always did, tucked into this big old chair that he had. And there was a show on TV where <clears throat> there was a bank robbery or something and this policeman just walked right out in traffic and put his hands up and everybody just screeched to a halt. And I thought, man, that's power. Like, I want to be a policeman. I remember telling my grandfather, I want to be a policeman, right? I want to be powerful like that. Because I thought, to, I knew I had no power whatsoever. And if I became a policeman, my, my father would never mess with our family again. So I, I just wired it up. So I'm like, I got to figure this out. So I, I crawled off the couch, the, off the chair, and I went to the kitchen and I looked and waited for my grandmother to turn away. And I snuck out in the garage. And I ran down to the street. I had to know what it feels like. So I walked right out on the street and a car whizzed by and I, I kept walking out and I put my hands up, you know, and all the cars stopped in both directions, started honking. Right. And so just like the policeman, I was all powerful. Right. And I'm, I'm just totally like amped up. And then I get snatched up and ran back to the house. And, uh, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And, so they scold me. They didn't spank me. They scolded me and sent me to my room. But then within about five minutes, I'm like, I got to know if that was for real. And I, I went and did it again. And some guy walking by snatched me up and my grandmother grabbed him. And they it, it hurt them more than it hurt me. But compared to my dad, my grandfather picked me up by the belt loops of my little pants and my grandmother hit me with a fly swatter. And I I, I screamed convincingly, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that the for my listeners right now, the book is filled with great stories, but there's lessons from all these stories, you know, and the lessons are what you're kind of dealing with psychologically. And I love the way you kind of blend it in as you tell the story. And you felt as if something was wrong with you because of the result of your dad. And you felt numb because of all of the abuse. Um, and I can imagine, you know, I can only imagine. What message do you have for the listeners that might be in a relationship like this? Um, and how do uh, they go about making either an escape, if necessary, or healing the relationship, if possible? Huh. Wow. Um I guess speaking for, speaking for myself, um, I had a prevailing belief that there must be something wrong with me. And uh, so it caused me to be uh, distant and numb and not not really fully available to friendships or relationships because there's definitely something wrong with me is what I was raised with, you know. And, um, and I thought that way until I was in my 20s and 30s. 
And I was just doing everything I could to look and walk and talk and be like everybody else, like successful people. And I was crafting this really important persona, but I lacked, I call it internal cohesion. Like the, the projection that I put out to everybody certainly did not match my, 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 my self, you know, my self worth and my, you know, who I, who I was inside. And that, that was really. I guess how did you how you know that I think the term that's been used before is like there's a cognitive dissonance, right? Uh, and and you know it's like what matches up with who I am and who I really want to be is two different things, you know. Uh, but obviously, this abusive relationship was the impetus for this uh, you reaching this point in your life, right? Of not feeling worthy of not just feeling numb inside right i could assume that you probably felt somewhat worthless well yeah it was lower than than shame you know and i just had a father who used to you know just uh call me bad names you know that were just like really disempowering and um and my mother would my mother wouldn't divorce him so we were just forced to be in this relationship and I say in the book, but thank goodness, my my great aunt, she, I'll just call her Glad. Glad provisioned me really well. She said, watch out for the people you least expect that you're going to bump into because there's most of the time they're here to teach you the most. So pay attention to the messengers that are constantly coming into your life. If you get broken down in a flat tire, guess what? There's somebody special that's coming your way. Pay attention. So these little nuggets, she just dripped on me as a little boy. And, um, and then for, and then, and one of those messengers I happened to meet two weeks before I got out of the Marine Corps and it changed the trajectory of my life completely. It's five minute conversation. So. Well, there's always, you know, the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell says, you know, out there all the time, you know, um, there are people there to help you. You know, what your aunt was saying is, you know, you, you just had to be aware of where they were and listen, you know, and I, I think that's really important. And you reach this young adulthood where you're carrying around lots of anger. Let's face it, as a young adult, you weren't a really good kid, okay, um, to say the least, at least what's depicted in the book. Um, speak with the listeners about what anger and resentment does to one's soul and why these emotions are so dangerous. Well, I I got so used to it that I didn't think I was being bullied or terrorized in the neighborhood. I got so used to it that I just 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 didn't have a lot of self worth. You know, when I left my house, uh, my mom would ask me to go to the store. There were there were groups of predators, like groups of guys, gangs of guys that would constantly be chasing me down, and you know, just constantly getting beat up by groups of guys. You know, so I wasn't safe in the home. I wasn't safe outside the home. And it can, it conditioned us a, a, a feeling of helplessness. Like I was so thoroughly stuck that, uh, I, didn't, I really didn't have any options. And that, that has a compounding effect over time on, on your psyche. I mean, the adverse hi- childhood experiences, the ACE scale, yeah. you know, if somebody has suffered from childhood, you know, abuse, that's a really good thing to to take 
you know, on a scale of one to 10, I'm a, I'm a 10, you know, and if you're above a four, there are all kinds of predispositions that one has for alcohol, alcoholism, drug addiction. You get above four to six and they're, you know, they're statistically, you're going to lose 20 years off your life. And I think mostly because of unresolved trauma, yeah. unresolved issues that you just can't get out of your system. Well, the stress that that causes in your life, and it's a, yeah. it's a chronic stress. You know, it's not one that ever goes away. There are all kinds of stressors we have in our lives, but they're not all chronic, right? right. And so when you take that ACE test, and, and I'll put a shout out to um, Dr. Brian Allman for any of you looking to get more information about ACE. Uh, he, we have a podcast with him, um, but we have several with him. But you're right. I mean, you know, look, you felt hopeless. And at the same time, you know, you had to fight back. You had to find a way to fight back. Um, so you were you were doing all kinds of things. And and I didn't put this in my questions, but I'm bringing it up now. You know, you your brother, Russ, um, was killed tragically um, and had been doing drugs. And as a result, when they finally did the autopsy at the time of, you know, him in this motorcycle accident, he literally, um, you know, he had been, I guess you've been taking cocaine and all kinds of things. Right. Right. Um, but you had a special relationship with him. And, um, I felt really sad at that point in the, in the book, you know, it was, um, uh, so speak about that because where I'm going with this is, you know, this is about relationships. This is about healing. Um, and that's one that I'm not certain that you ever got a chance to heal. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Um, I lost my only brother to a high, high you know, motorcycle accident, and then I lost my only son to a high speed motor, motorcycle accident. Exactly. So this has been a. It's this book has been a, as much about grief and loss. Like I say in the book, grief and loss are my two greatest teachers in trauma as a close third. You know, so we had a special relationship and, uh, but it was, it, it was on the verge of abuse of it at times because he was like six foot five with a full beard, a size 13 and a half shoe at like 16. He was like a huge guy, you know, and I'm a skinny little kid, you know, so uh, it, we, we were, we were close because we lived in trauma together. Right. right. We bonded in trauma big time and. He was my brother and nobody could mess with him, but we, we, we had a close relationship. Um, but, but he really got something from my dad that's this level of, I think we all did this level of volatility. And, um, you know, and when I, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I came home one day, he tried to pull that on me and, you know, I just, just beat him up, you know, and so it shifted our relationship, but we, but we needed that. Like, like he, we, he needed to look me in the eye and just talk to me and not, not be his little brother anymore. And, uh, so when he passed away, it was, it was the strangest thing seeing, seeing him on the table, identifying, you know, like he's there, but he's not here. Like, where did he go? I was just astonished with this whole thing. And I never, I never really felt the pain. I just go numb and I just, I just check out, you know, and, um, so I buried all my feelings with Russ and just moved on. But that's just a symptom of trauma. It's like you you don't have the capacity to cope, so you just go numb and 
I'm fine. I'll get through it. <laughs> and I think that's reason. important for the listeners because, you know, grieving, I lost two brothers this last three years, um, not from COVID, uh, one from Parkinson's, the other from uh, a heart condition. And, you know, I found it even challenging to kind of grieve through that process, you know, being very personal. Um, and and it, and I don't think it has anything to do with them being a brother. It has to do with the relationship you've built along the way. Were you very close? Did you spend a lot of time together? Were you sharing similar uh, likes and things that you like to do? And I have to say, you know, there were four of us. And um, I have to say with those two brothers in particular, there wasn't a lot of that going on. It was kind of like you grew up and they went their way, you went your way kind of thing, right? Um, and so it's – in a lot of families, this is true. I know I'm speaking the truth because you're, a lot of times you're closer to your best friend than you are to your brother or your sister, right? Um, right. So it, it, is, it is interesting because you find people that are uh, closer in relationship to you because of the things that you're bonded by. Right. And you were bonded by something kind of negative, actually, which was your father's abuse to to the two of you. And you tell a story about your father. And he used to work as a bouncer in a nightclub in Arizona. And I just thought this was just like I, I read this and I was like I was I was almost in tears. The following morning, he would tell you about the fights that he had with patrons and they broke up. You said sometimes he came home with a black guy or a knife mark or whatever he had on him. And one morning he was acting out with you and said that if you had, were ever in a fight with a Mexican, which in Arizona, there are a lot. In California, there are a lot. Um, to break their fingers because they all have knives and they know how to use them. Okay. I couldn't even believe that statement, to be honest with you, that that actually could come out of somebody's mouth. But I guess it did. It was your dad. Um, this incident must have had an indelible imprint on your mind. And what do you take away from this encounter with your father that is much deeper than just the statement? Because what he told you in that statement was he I guarantee your father had plenty of prejudices, okay? It just is. There was one of them, but that was only one small one. I can really guarantee you that he had plenty of prejudices along the way. Probably. Um, I, I, I took it as kind of strange, that's for sure. And he didn't say fingers. He said, if you're going to fight with a Mexican, break their hands because they break all carry knives. And I'm hands. like, and when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, I live in I live in Southwest Phoenix. Like yeah. all my all my friends are Mexicans, and they all they all had knives. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, that, that makes sense. And they did know how to use them. And so it's like yeah. it was a bad neighborhood, you know. Um, but was really what was really shocking is he told me to pick up a knife off the table and to come at him and try to stab him. Yeah. <laughs> and he took out his billy club, and I'm like, I'm not going to stab you. And he so he thumped me on the arm. He said, come at me and try to stab me. And eventually he coaxed me into it. And I came at him. I tried to stab him and he knocked my wrist with this stick so hard that the, the, the knife flew across the room, you know, and it, and it, and it really hurt. And he's, and I'm, you know, didn't, he didn't care that I was in pain. He's like, go get the knife. 
come at me another way, you know? And uh, so I start swishing the knife at him back and forth, coming towards him. And he, he clocks me in the elbow and the knife flies away. You know, he's like, don't fight the knife, you know? And so, I mean, he wouldn't, let me, he wouldn't let me take karate to defend myself, but he'll teach me how to fight with knives. I mean, it's just like the, you know, this is a kind of warped uh, fathering relationship I had with him. <laughs> yeah, know? it was a, it was a, a very compelling story. I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't think I've ever read a book that's had that kind of uh, compelling of a story. But I think this leads us to this point that you want the readers to kind of get from this. And you have a chapter entitled Finding Your Inner Compass. Okay. And what advice would you have for our listeners about finding this inner compass? Because it is really a, a key thing, right? It's like we're all trying to find it. And with somebody who's been through as much abuse and as much trauma, um, you know, all your military career, everything aside, all my listeners, when you get this book, you're going to get to read about all of that. Um, how did you ultimately, in your estimation, or are you still looking for it, find your inner compass? Well, I'm glad it would always talk to me about, you know, you're going to find your purpose. You're going to find what you're here to do in, in the world. And she just kept talking to me about what is your purpose, you know, and, um, and, and quite frankly, it's not in the book, but survive the neighborhood. Okay. And then you either go to school, go in the military, but get out of here. That was our strategy. You know, um, she, she used to say, you're going to be an adult a lot longer than you are a child. This will end sooner than you think. It's going to take a few years. So she was provisioning me for the hero's journey on a constant and regular basis. Like some, this is a big one. Someday, someday you're going to have kids and I want you to make a promise with me that you will never ever break. And then when, that your, your, your grand, your son has children. He'll pass it on to them. And she said that your father has been incredibly abusive to you, but you're different and you're going to be an adult a lot longer than you're going to be a child. And when your son is old enough, I want them, I want you to make when you're, when your children are old enough, I want you to make this same promise. And that promise is that you will never raise a hand. You never hit your children in anger and you'll never have them live in fear of you. This is how we break the generational cycle because you will have a family someday. It's just really bad right now. Bad things are happening. So these little nuggets. And then sure enough, when I had a, when I had my son, when he was old enough, eight years old, I said, I want to, I want to make a promise with you, you know, and then when he was 24 in the military, he thanked me for making that promise that we never hit each other. So my whole thing was, I got to break this generational cycle, this, this hereditary violence of the men in my family is just, it's just too prevalent. It's just going to repeat itself. So she was provisioning me once again for how to be a healthy person because I'm going to have more choices when I'm an adult. And this little promise is just one example of, you know, I never, I'm not a violent person. I have, you know, I had a rage problem, but I wasn't really violent. I was triggered by authority figures and people trying to control me and it was a bad recipe. And then if you throw in a bunch of beer, you know, then it really gets pretty volatile. Yeah. Well, you know, you, <laughs> the opportunity you had from um, the hero in the hero's journey, which this case was glad, you know, was the reminder of who you could be. 
And your inner compass was really realizing that, that you didn't have to do this through anger and violence, right? That you could raise children in your life. As she said, you're going to be an adult a lot longer than you're going to be a child. You'll get through this. Um, And I would agree with that. I mean, and when you look at this thing called a histogram, many of my listeners know, it's like the history of your family, right? It's like your grandfather, your great-grandfather, and you see patterns that start to occur in a histogram, right? And I'll never forget this author that I was interviewing, John Henry, um, not that long ago, talking about something very similar to what you just said. And I think this is very poignant. So um, his, uh, he was in the kitchen, and he and his brother decided to play with knives, and there was a babysitter. And they had a set of knives, and they're swinging these knives around. And this babysitter, which was a male babysitter, grabbed to get them to stop doing it. And in the process, he cut the babysitter's finger off. Okay, right? So now think about this. Mm-hmm. Cut the babysitter's finger off. They they call, they get the emergency, take him down. Fortunately, they sewed his finger back on again. But here's the moral to that story. He thought his dad was going to beat the living shit out of him when he got home for the knife fight. But he didn't. He said, oh, that's okay. He was very complacent about the whole thing. You know, I know you guys are just kind of acting out and he didn't reprimand him. He didn't hit him. He didn't, he didn't do anything. But what he did tell him was, you know, my father was part of the Jewish mafia. And I had to live up with a, a father that beat the holy shit out of me. Like, like literally, so you're talking about breaking a pattern. He said, I got beat for everything by my dad because he was just an angry man. So this guy's grandfather, right? So they broke the pattern with his father. And his father, this has made him look at his children, like you, you're doing, and become a loving, compassionate, understanding individual. And that leads me to John Henry in the chapter, The Dude from Philly. Uh, you came to an understanding with your father that, that you knew you no longer needed to hurt him. What happened to you and how did you let go of all the anger you had within over the years? And what should the listeners know about, one, self-compassion and compassion for others? Because look, you beat yourself up for a long time. John Henry beat himself up based on what I could tell in the book for a long time. Right. right. Well, um, I went in the army in, uh, briefly, and then I, I, I went in the Marine Corps, and I I did it because I wanted him to be proud of me. And so it's really kind of a twisted sense of I need. No, it's not. No, it's it's, it's you're it's trying normal. to get recognition. It's very normal. Yeah, it's yeah. I, very I normal that. for you know, the pattern you're talking about is you're looking for somebody who was never proud of you to be proud of you. So you did something that you thought would make him proud of you. Which made me very angry. Like when I say twisted, I was twisted up inside because of all the abuse, and here I am joining the Marine Corps yeah. to make him proud of me. So that was a form of magma 
you know, that uh, really, so I went in because I was just tired of being messed with and I was just not going to, I was gonna, wasn't going to have it anymore, you know? And so I, I gained 20, 30 pounds and, you know, I, I just, just, uh, I became a military athlete like all of us were. And, you know, when I come back, I, I took him for a drive one day and um, he was, a ner- he was nervous I'm like, I got to go across town and run an errand. You want to come with me? I need, I need to talk to you. So he like reluctantly got in the car with me. And then I went up the freeway and I pulled off and I pulled behind an old abandoned gas station. Now I can see him visibly, visibly like, like ready to fight. Like, and, and I just, I just looked over at him and he was getting older. And, and I, I just, I just, I just thought about glad. And I thought about like, I, I'm not you. I'm not you. You know, there's a, a sense of gratitude for glad that just came over me. And I was, and it was, it was like, you know, I need to have a conversation with you. And I, I just started talking to him about what some of the frustrations are that I've been experiencing in my life, you know, didn't attack him. I just said, this is what I'm doing. And, I couldn't believe it. He started crying and he said, you know, he started telling me that he had the same problems. And we, in a weird way, we kind of struck an accord. Of course. I was still, I was, man, I, I later in life, I let him have it. Like I didn't physically let him have it, but I later in life, because this was the first time I ever saw him. You know, in a way that he was relatable, that he was actually talking with me. He never- yeah, he emote. It was the first time he really emoted, right? Yeah. He had some emotion show. And I remember reading that, and uh, I was so happy that that actually occurred for both you're, of you. Well, you're bringing up a good point. About 50%, the first 50 to 60% of the book is about the relentless pursuit of becoming who we are meant to be. It's like this stacking on experiences and just surviving and then learning and then growing. And then the, then it takes on the trajectory is interrupted and it takes on more of an aspirational trajectory. Okay. Because it has to go through the pain. Like it was really difficult to write this, but right up front, the very first chapter is about this little kid sitting with his aunt glad because we had a secret like every day, which for those two months, my sister and brother never figured it out. She'd get up at four 30 and I'd hear her get up and start cooking bacon, Canadian bacon, cheddar cheese, toast, and she'd make coffee, cream, and maple syrup. So I'd sneak out of the room and I'd go hang out with her for like two to three hours every single morning and sit at her feet and talk with her, you know? And so, you know, these, these little, but the thing you're relating to, and I think for all of my listeners is, you know, your father had this history too. You didn't probably understand that history that got him to where he was. And um, many of us don't, you know, we may hear the story, but we don't know what it's like. Right. And, and we don't have the tolerance or understanding for um, someone's behavior who's be- uh, that has been affected by how they were brought up, you right. know? So if you looked at your dad and said, well, what was your dad? What was your grandfather like? You know, what was his grandfather like, right? And you go back in time and you'll find that there's patterns. There are patterns. Alcoholism is a pattern usually. You know, sometimes it skips a generation, but the reality is 
Alcohol and drugs are patterns. Uh, anger and abuse are patterns. Um, and those patterns are where. And I'm so happy you wrote this book because you show how you can break that pattern. You actually said you came home and you you termed this, uh, the tumultuous relationship had turned into one of tolerable neutrality is what you said. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what lesson did you learn and what do you, what could you tell any military listener to know about re-entry into civilian life, whether they've had this experience or just, because you have tons of experience in this area, right? It's like, this is, you counsel veterans. And I think for all the veterans out there listening, uh, John Henry is a, is a great resource for you. Go to harvestingwisdom.com. He's got another website that we're going to put a link to as well, which is more around the veterans. What's the name of that website? Transitioningveteransbook.com. Transitioningveteransbook.com. So we're going to put a link there. But if you would address in particular, uh, we have so many right now. I mean, you got all these people that are in various locations and um, we have this stupid ass war in Ukraine that continues on. I mean, and yes, there are some of our guys going there to help fight with the Ukrainians. War is never, you can never say at the end of a war that anything great happens other than it ended. Hmm. You know, you know, it does more to divide and separate people. Um, I always said that religions frequently did more to divide people. Um, but it, it's almost intolerable every time you kind of think about what's going on, the inhumanity that's, that's being placated in, in Ukraine. It's nuts. It is. It is. And, um, and people have to reenter, you know, I'm not saying that we have people in Ukraine that are reentering, but we have people from Afghan and, and, and the Afghan war went on for 12 years. Uh, was that about right? 20 yeah. Yeah. Well, and so you last, re you summer. re-enter. Yeah, you re-enter with a you know PTSD or something, which you deal with this a lot. What would advice would you have for military listeners that are coming back trying to re-enter and get back with their families? And well, I I wrote this audiobook and, and narrated the audiobook called Transitioning Veterans, how we get in our own way and what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And because I've been working for 25 years with veterans and veterans organizations, and I was just collecting all these common dilemmas. And, you know, it comes down to a, a, a fundamentally a few things. Identity, mission, meaning, and purpose. You get that when you go in the military. Okay. And you it's galvanized into you, no matter what the branch, you have a sense of identity, right? You know who you are. You're wearing this uniform. You're trained. You have people that you work with. Like in the Marine Corps, unit, core, God, and country. That's the ethos. You know, the people serving next to you first, you know, then the Marine Corps, then your God, then your country. And um, I, I just saw for so many, so many years, people coming back and they get out of the military and if they're wounded and they get separated or they come home and they separate from military service after their career they don't, they're not told during the transition program out of the military, Hey, you're going to go through an identity crisis. You need to reinvent yourself. So we get out and we can't fill up the void with drugs or alcohol or sex or 
you know, workaholism or adrenaline. Okay. But when I, I found the most interesting conversation with veterans is, you know, when they realize that they need to reinvent themselves specifically around creating a new identity. And I had to go through mm-hmm. this with my son when he came back from Afghanistan and separated from the military. Who are you? Like, who are you now? Who are you becoming? In his case, we decided that he needed to have an identity of being a college student, right? Like you're no longer in the military. You don't have a degree. Your job options are limited. So what do you want to do? You want to use your military benefits? So great. So then what's your new identity? I guess to be a student. Well, then what's your first mission? And then after a lot of conversation, okay, your first mission is to go get in possession of all the educational materials, who the veterans counselors are uh, in your area for the school. You know, and then what's what's what 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 are you going to do with all this? What gives you meaning and purpose? What what are you thinking about? Well, he wanted to be a counselor for veterans because so many of the people that he spoke with who were non-veterans weren't as relatable. So he's like, I could do a much better job. So okay, so now you have something with a future vision of what gives you meaning and purpose. So instantaneously, he he was galvanized into he needs goals. Like military personnel are they they thrive on objectives. And then when you don't have one, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Right. I found most of the work. And I also found out a lot about substance abuse. Like I really got clear that I'm not an alcoholic. I'm certainly not an addict, but I have abused uh, alcohol and a little in drugs at times. But I'm talking mostly just binge drinking with the wrong people in the wrong situations because I was numbing out, you know, so taking a look at. You know, how how you're reconstructing your life, like who are you becoming? It's a big part of this book, the relentless pursuit of becoming who we are meant to be. Mm-hmm. So with veterans, it starts with like getting getting real, you know, identity, mission, meaning and purpose. If they had that when they got out, because most people, most veterans, I think we just turn our life into a mission. And like when I came home, it, I was really just too cocky because, you know, I, I had my identity as in the Marine Corps. And I was only in for, for a small, I didn't do a career. I was only in for one term, but it's so ingrained into you that you're, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. There's no question, no doubt whatsoever. So it is just instilled into every single one. And so it's really tough to kick when you get out. And, you know, fortunately, I'll, I'll tell you what the biggest nugget to your question would be. Fortunately, Two weeks after I got out, before I was getting out of the military, I ran into a warrant officer in a USO in Okinawa, Japan. And I was drinking with my buddies and getting really loud about what we're going to do when we get out. And when I Mm -hmm. went to get a pitcher of beer, he tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if he'd give me some advice. And the long story short, he said, I'd go to the closest bookstore. I'd go to the self-help section and I'd find anything that jumps off the shelf at me and I'd start reading about who I'm becoming. Because I was, I didn't want to go to counseling, but right. I could certainly, I could certainly start getting into personal development, and that's how I met you twenty some odd years ago. Yeah, I got into the, 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 the profession of personal and transformational development because of that one five minute conversation. Well, you know, you you've had a very interesting journey, and in that this book about the hero's journey is is wonderful. I can just tell for my listeners, this is extremely well written. If you're wanting to read something that you personally can relate to, good chances are there's there's parts of this book you're going to relate to. And the novel, as I said, these these compelling stories, and you call it the warrior's wisdom. 
you know, what three bits of advice would you have for our listeners about personal growth, finding out who they really are, and their purpose in life? If you were going to leave our listeners with our kind of, hey, this is the last question, uh, here's some bits of advice I could give you. What would you tell them? Um. What was the first question? Because I'm, I'm swimming. Well, the, the 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 there's three parts to the question, but the the first part is uh, about personal growth. What right. is it that you would tell them? You just actually told me in the last one. You said go to a bookstore and find a book and start to explore yourself. The second one is finding out who you really are and their purpose in life. So. I know when you find out who you are, you find your purpose. You know, curiosity is is basically um, something that I think people need to have if they're going to find a purpose, right? Um, Focus, as you said, you're determined. You're on a mission. I've I've done many interviews with Stephen Kotler, who talks about hacking flow, right? So you talk about how do I get into the flow? Well, you focus is for free. Uh, having curiosity is important. Having a purpose is important. And then turning that purpose into goals and those goals and proximal goals, right? So if you were to say, well, what is the personal growth cycle? It's not that difficult. It's like you have to be curious. You have to have a purpose, right? Um, you need to be on purpose more than you're off purpose. You need to have a set of goals or aims. Um, you can't be attached to those aims because they don't always work out the way you think they're going to work out. So if in your mind's eye, you go, hey, I'm, this is the way I'm going to build this empire or do whatever. It doesn't always work out that way. So as long as you don't get too attached to it and you're flexible, I think you're in pretty good space, right? But what what would you say about purpose and um and and i say finding out who you are well victor frankel you need go no further than looking at man's search, <laughs> man search for meaning yeah right? yeah so, definitely so victor, frankel, victor frankel was a mental health professional who was taken to the concentration camps his family was taken away assumed they were dead and they stripped him all his clothes and then they told him to take off his wedding ring and in that moment he discovered that the only thing he had control of was how he responded to his captor. Right. And so he then wrote man's search for meaning and carried the manuscript, I guess, in the, in his jacket. Okay. And, uh, and it became a worldwide phenomenon for, 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 for meaning and purpose therapy, logotherapy. And it was adopted by the whole VA system. You know, what, what meaning and purpose can you draw from your adversity? Like there must be some reason why you survived, that is to, you know, th- that's going to somehow give you meaning and purpose and create something's extraordinary with your life. And it's up to us to find it, you know? And so, well, when he was in those concentration camps, another thing he said, and this would relate very much to your father, you know, he, your, your dad did everything he could. I don't think intentionally it was more of subconscious, but to strip you of, of your dignity. You know, your identity, your dignity, whatever. And Frankel said that some point in the book, that these concentration camp officers would attempt to break you down to where you'd 
your 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 were identity less and you didn't your dignity was gone right just the, the way that they treated you what the slop they gave you everything and he said if you can always overcome that you can overcome almost anything right sure. yeah you know how about the guy who spent what was it 363 days in a in a concentration camp i forget and then he, he i remember watching him and do a speech and he loved playing golf. So he played golf in his mind over and over and over again for 365 days. Right. And he got out and they said, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to play golf. And he went to a golf course and he shot an actual par. It was because he played it in his mind's eye, no matter what they did to him, you know, they weren't going to strip him of one thing that he really loved doing, right? Which was, I thought it, I thought it was an amazing story, right? It's like he hadn't had a golf club in his hand for like three years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So well, I think when you're, when you're in that situation, like you were with your father or anybody is, they've got to like start putting images in their mind's eye that are completely different than the situation they're in. Right. Right. Well, I would, yeah, I would time travel. I would check out and I would find ways for me to not be present. So I, I, I learned how to numb out, unfortunately, and that carried with me for a long time. And, and then I also hit, hit out a lot. Yeah. Like you're asking earlier, like, what's the key I, for me? I found out that I was so good at, at hiding out that I could watch others in, in competitions and the military, it was really easy to hide out and I could watch how people crumbled and how their body posture didn't quite work. And I got to see massive amounts of failure and I would intentionally hold back. So when I went, I already had a really pretty good idea of what it's going to take to do something. And I would probably nail it on the first try or, or, or I would just, how I would show up and look and communicate would be so much more congruent that, you know, I was able to get through things. And what I learned when I went through this program, the warrior's wisdom years later is that go first, go first. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal for me because I was so conditioned to hiding out, not wanting to be embarrassed, not wanting to look bad, you know, that uh, I was just literally hiding out. And I was really good at mimicking and modeling and matching like what's going on in my surroundings from a survival point of view. I was really good at that. And then I learned, I started learning, like when I got out of the Marine Corps, I had very limited uh, vocabulary, I had a very limited range of emotions, and I had a rage problem. I got in a lot of trouble in the military because of rage, you know, and alcohol-related rage incidents, you know. And so, you know, being able to really kind of focus on who I'm becoming, personal development for me was my, just the biggest ticket. And everybody I've ever talked to, like that warrant officer that met me where I was and told me to go to the self-help section of the bookstore. Mm -hmm. I've been paying that five minute conversation forward tens of thousands of times since that moment. And I never saw the guy again, you know, and so that you, you, your, your life can transform in a, in a, in a blink, you know, if you're, it's not even if you're ready for it, but if you're open, you know, Yeah, and and I think it's also being aware of the messages, right? In other words, if you're going through life with a heightened sense of mindfulness and awareness, um, you you can pick up on these subtle messages that are coming from everywhere. 
And you get an opportunity to redirect the course of your life as a result of GLAD, as a result of your grandparents, as a result of all the good people in your life that were instilling um, great behavior and learnings and teachings, right, that you then could carry forward to your kids. And it's been an honor having you on Inside Personal Growth and talking about your book. Uh, For everybody who is listening, we'll have a link to the book. comes out March 23rd. Be the Dawn in the Darkness, uh, John Henry Parker. Um, John Henry, namaste to you. Thank you Mm. for being on the show. Thanks for spending some time with my listeners. Um, A great opportunity to hear about your personal story, but as important, the lessons that you learned and the lessons that my listeners can take away. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.